I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. everyone and welcome to our third Motorsport Hall of Fame podcast. What a fantastic hour we have lined up for you today. So next to me is three-time world champion Freddie Spencer and you may notice that we have quite a few motorbikes in the background and that's because we're at the National Motorcycle Museum near Birmingham. If you ever have a spare moment you have to come and see this place. Even if you don't have a spare moment make time and come and see it because as I heard from Roger on the reception uh, that there are 820 bikes on display at any given time, an incredible amount. Um, every era is covered and it's, um, it's worth seeing. So later in the show we're going to be talking about the Motorcycle Hall of Fame category and we're going to select 12 nominees for that category in 2017 which you can then vote on. Um, Valentino Rossi was inducted this year uh, but we've got many more names to come. Um, before we get to that, let's talk to the winner of 27 World Championship races, Freddie. A very warm welcome and thank you so much for coming all this way uh, to come and chat to us today. Oh, it's great to be here, man. It's great to see Matt, of yeah. course, as always. And so it's, it's and in this, this museum uh, is incredible. I've been here before and just the, the diversity of the bikes and they have American Dirt Track bikes here. I mean, Dave Aldana's bike is out there and I was... It was funny because last the one time I came here in July, somebody said, "What numbers that? Thirty-eight is Dave Aldana." As a kid, I watched it. You know, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I should also say that we're joined by Matt Oxley, our bike correspondent, and Alan Hyde um, behind the, the cameras, as it were. I always want to say Alan Hyde on drums. I don't know why, but there we go. <laughs> um, uh, Freddie, do you do you still watch MotoGP today? Do you, do you keep abreast of it? And st- what are your views on the sort of current state and Marquez and battle with Rossi. Sort of about four questions in there, but yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yes. Well, one, yes, I do watch it. And yes, I do keep up with it. And 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 I'm always interested in, you know, uh, the obvious things, uh, the competition, uh, the equipment, some of the evolution of, of, of the bikes and, and where the direction is going. Um, I'm also a fan, you know, of, of motorcycling. So... I uh, enjoy just the, the drama of it, and, and obviously I understand so well, you know, the guys uh, from rookies and, and to someone like Valentino um, and his longevity, and so it's, it's always interesting how people approach things. Uh, and, you know, the bikes now, uh, especially now, this year, with uh, changing to the little less of the electronics involvement obviously the the one that it's it's one that is everyone has to use and so the manufacturers have had to kind of 
um, get their bike and develop it for that one process, and which I think is a very good thing. Um, the tires is interesting. And again, my, because of my experience, um, and you know, I haven't been around a long time, I remember the characteristics of the Michelins. And so this year I had an opportunity a couple of times to talk to, uh, like Loris Boz and uh, Yanni Hernandez, because uh, the school I do in France is Ducati sponsored and they ride Ducatis. And so, you know, they would ask me, like, when you were riding Michelins, what was the tendency? I said, well, always a lot of rear grip, and we'd have to run a very hard front exactly the same characteristics and so it's a lot of times you know people assume that things dramatically change a lot it's it's not the case you know some things it, it changes but it's, it's the, same the same with kind of the motorcycle character as well exactly. isn't it yamaha have always built kind of very neutral bikes exactly honda kind of build an engine and then they work out how to get the power to the ground and, exactly and, they're and, an and engine you, know, you compare the suzuki now that uh, Ian Oney will ride last year with the sort of RGV that Schwantz rode, you know, that very maneuverable, exactly. uh, very sort of precise front end, etc. You know, yes. and this is going through generations of engineers. It's not exactly. like anybody's telling them it's to It's characteristic. But just somehow it seems to happen. It does, it does. And, and you know, I was thinking the exact same thing when, when they were talking about um, uh, Esparga and, and Vinales when they got on Zuki. Wow, it really steers well and things. Well, the GSXRs, you know, the Matt Maladin used to talk about that 15 years ago on the the Jixers, and and you're right, Matt, on on the characteristics of the Hondas, um, the engine. You know, it's it's like when I was sitting with Mr. Honda when I finally met him in his house, and the first thing he talked about with me was building taking engines in his garage and he, he he's an engine manufacturer he was an engine man it's about power it was about and then putting that in a bicycle frame and so the characteristics the company uh, honda specifically is is about that you know they they build engines e even the the power characteristics of our 500s we were always a lot of top power and, and difficult to get the power to the ground and so it's uh from that perspective, I really enjoy to see how riders adapt. It's one of the great things about what we do. You know, it's extremely practical and analytical, but you're required to have so much trust in what you, what you sense and what you feel on the bike and your, your interaction with the motorcycle. Um, your confidence on that day, your certainty of, of what you need to do, is, it's, it's an incredible, it's incredible sport that way. Yeah. I, I wanted to take you back to your, your, your days in the dirt and how you developed your, your riding style and technique and kind of all those sensory things that you, you relied on when you, when you did uh, make it up to, to Grand Prix racing. Um, I actually read one of Matt's pieces that he sent over yesterday did with you, and you were talking about when you were absolutely tiny, going out in the rain with wet leaves and trying to work out at what lean angle, how much front slip you got and rear slip. Just, just tell us a bit about that, because I mean, that also, how old were you? Because this, this wasn't sort of age 20, obviously. Oh, no, no, I was, eight, nine, I was eight, nine years old, eight, eight, nineteen years old. And I, I would, in my yard, we had an acre of property, um, and acre, acre and a half, and about 200 trees. And in the fall, when the leaves would, would come off the trees um, in the south, it, we'd have a lot of rain. But I, and I wanted to ride every day, so, um, you know, the, it would rain, the leaves would, would fall. And after hitting the tree a couple of times, I kind of figured out, you know. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing what, like a tree to make you Well, learn, there's nothing like a tree, yeah. And my mom, it was always funny, my mom would be in the house, and she would never come outside and watch me ride, except when she stopped hearing the engine running, you know. 
And so there's many times you come out and she's real Southern, you know, Freddie, you know, and she'd call her. I couldn't speak because the, the wind was knocked out of me from hitting a tree, you know. And I'd be, I'm, I'm fine, you know. But anyway, but it, it taught me it, exactly. And, and it was funny because it was one of the things when I was doing a trash control story a couple of years ago for Soccer World, you know, was, and, and that's the reason why. I was on a train. I was talking to a kid. A young writer, uh, just regular, just just an enthusiast who asked me about it and what I thought about it. And I was describing about that that was one of the things that taught me to really pay attention. Because you can imagine, you know, I'm in first, second gear, third gear, I'm 100, I'm going along. And the only way I knew how wet it was was I would pay attention to the color of the leaves. And that would determine my trajectory and lean angle. And so it, it, it instilled in me this this... You know, I could see it, but I didn't want to slow down. So that's how I would adjust to it and not hit a tree, you know. Amazing. But but the the great thing about riding a dirt bike, and this is the thing, is to pinpoint it specifically, is a bike moves a certain way. For example, as you apply lean angle and you, you turn in, it depends on obviously, and, and it's a great thing about dirt riding, um, if it's slick or if you have grip, but still, the bike, if the rear breaks away, it goes back to the front. The front tucks, the front tucks, and then the rear reacts. And I developed this ability where I recognized exactly what the movement was. And then that way, as we went, I went up through the years, it's, it's exactly the same. So I know exactly how a bike's going to move based on the initial reaction. And, and the key is, is paying attention and obviously paying attention to everything else and your ability to adjust to it. And dirt bike riding instilled in that with me when I was a kid. I learned to trust exactly what the movement was and what I needed to do to, to counteract it, to adjust to it. And I seem to always have this ability, and, and certainly you could say it's a people, you know, gift or, or ability, but it's more I could recognize it. I could feel it. You know, I could feel it right before it would happen. And, and you combine that. That's why I was saying that, that what we do is this incredible combination of there's practical things and techniques that happen. But you can see the real key is, is, is your ability to be able to sense and feel it. When you combine those two together with work, work ethic, it's, it's a pretty good combination. Where did the analytical approach come from? I mean, were you very analytical in other parts of your life? Is it, or is it just motorcycles where it yeah, really... I, when I was, again, when I was a kid, I, I, what I would do, I guess you could say, I'd watch the older guys, like at Ross Downs. I can remember one time specifically, I was probably about five years old, and we just did, um, it was getting where we were, they'd last run every Friday night. You know, initially when we started, the only thing they, they really wanted to do was, was to keep us from riding around when our brothers and dads and everything kicking up dirt and and you know just causing running over people and things like that so they they threw us out during intermission one night at lake levon and so then we you know things it was also timing is everything you know the right time and and their flat tracking after only any sunday happened you know things were really starting to pick up and and there was more opportunities but i i, I would watch the older guys and i would watch what i would watch is is i would watch I just, this is what I would see. I would see their their trajectory, you know, and, and the lean angle they would use. And then I would pay attention to how long it took them to get the bike to rotate and things. And, and granted, on my little bike, I, I couldn't slide it that much. I tried. The problem is once you get a sideway, there's no power. It runs out of power really fast, and it goes like this, and then high side. And, 
couple of those. I thought, well, I better not do that anymore. So, but in all seriousness, I I would pay attention to those, those things, and so that was the pro, that was the development of the analytical part, and then, like I say, to really execute it, it is all about seeing it and sensing, feeling it. You you focus on, you know, the process in that moment, and there's no way, because it happens too quickly. You it's, have to stay way ahead memory. of it. Yes. Yeah. Well, it happens too quickly. Even you can't react to it. So. As you can see, one of the keys, the difference between someone who races at a local level, community level, state level, national level, the differences along the ways is their ability to be able to react to it, you know, is, is their comfort level in that respect. You know, it's, it's kind of like when you hear people talk about crashing. You know, I, I can describe sometimes a crash in a, in a shutter click from one to the next all the things that happen in between. You just, you know, I can feel the bike slowing down as it's going over and everything. With a, in a camera shot, that could be here to here, right, Matt? You, you hear people describe it all the time. And so, you know, that, that ability is, is an inherent thing. When I had my school in Vegas in the United States, um, you know, I'd raced 29 years. I knew what I wanted to teach the students. It was the greatest thing I ever did because it taught me about one of the, my favorite things is to teach. I love that. You know, I love the interaction. So, but one of the things I noticed with, with the average rider is their difficulty is not being able to execute, is being able to react to it. You know, sometimes they'll be off over here and not realize it until they're already over there. And the key is, is you know, to catch, to see it before it happens. And, um, Riding in my yard, you know, practicing that, I, I always really, I really focused on innately the movement. And, and that allowed me to develop the real skills of being able to react to it before it's happening, know how the bike's going to react, and then uh, anticipate it. Do you think it comes back to the kind of the, the so-called 10,000 hour rule where, you know, to get good at, I mean, that's what you did. Yes. Just... Every, if you want to be good at anything, oh. just do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, and, yeah. and just never the stop. Hours and hours. You know, it's like, it's probably why one of the things when I first came over, first racing, because, you know, you, and I do appreciate this, I'm not saying this, you know, but people say, you know, you make it look so easy. And, and I would always say, you have no idea how difficult that is. But really, it's, it's being able to anticipate that. And that was, hundreds and you're right thousands of hours that's why i remember so well as a, you know as a kid riding in my yard i mean i can i can close my eyes and still f feel going through the trees and on a cool day in different parts of the yard it was cool air was cooler than others i can still feel that amazing and, but that's 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 the focus you know yeah. of being the able to I think there was a golfer. I can't remember which one it was but he was uh, he was extremely experienced and very good and he someone accused one of his shots of being lucky. And he said, funny, that the more I play, the, the luckier I get. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. quite, quite a good advice. Right. It's a similar thing, yeah, this, yeah. 10,000 hours. Sure, um, sure. Now, I, I wanted to jump ahead to yeah. 1980, Brands Hatch. Um, and the, the race there, the Transatlantic Trophy. And you came over and you beat the likes of Roberts, the likes of Sheen. Did you, I mean, you obviously realized at the time how, how big a race this was. Did you go into it 
thinking I can have these guys. There's, I mean, no, it's, I, I I never assume anything in that respect. It, that's an interesting unknown thing because people talk about the importance of having confidence. The confidence is not the issue, and and the certainty of, of I know is it's exactly what I should do, but it's the mindset that's the real key. Is because you never assume it's going to happen. That way allows you to be right in the right in the moment and in tune with it. That that Thursday when I showed up, at, well, it goes back just a few weeks before that because it was really Daytona, and my almost winning the Daytona 200 that gave us the chance, and one of the the American riders couldn't go. I think he maybe crashed. It was either John or Henry DeGal, uh, John Long or Henry DeGal, and and he couldn't. He couldn't race. So Gavin Tripp, Gavin came over to Irv and I after, after the end of the 200, and we were disappointed because I had the race won 10 laps ago and broke crankshaft. But he said, would you like to go to the match races? And we said, sure. And um, he said, great. So we, we came over and got here on Thursday. Well, I got here on Wednesday. And then Thursday, we, they gave us a 45-minute session in the afternoon. And, and I've told the story many times. But... And we show up at the track in, in these Range Rovers, and, and they, <laughs> I get out of the car, and these fans are rushing over to get to the guys. You know, I barely get out of the way. And um, so we go out, and, and for me, learning a racetrack, and this is why, it's, it was not that difficult. I could learn track pretty quickly because of, I paid attention so well when I was a kid, riding in my yard to different and changing conditions all the time. I could just get that, and I could see it. And see a track and the angles. I just see all those things. The next day, uh, probably a real critical moment was Dale Singleton and I were walking through the tunnel, and Dale said, "Are you nervous?" And I wasn't. I, I was anticipating it. I was excited. I certainly was not thinking that I was going to go out and win the race. But I was ready. I'd spent my, you know, I spent my 14 years of, of racing. Um, I'd been watching Kenny since I was a kid, going to the Astrodome, looking through the fence, and I'd watch. He was the first guy who I ever saw get the bike on the side and use both tires to get the thing to rotate, and I'd practice that in my yard, you know. So the, it's what Mark Marquez does so well now, and it's a dirt tracking move, and it's what I did. So it's, it's, um, it's a, an opportunity, and, and I, I, was, I was ready for it, you know. I went out and, and um, was able to get in the lead first lap bat past Graham, Cros Graham Crosby and, and won the race. And I, was, I was there. I was a kid stood in the mud. Yeah. I, yeah, and, and just like you said, you were, I didn't even realize that you were a last-minute replacement yeah. for that. But, but I'm sure none of us had ever heard of you. No. And, uh, you know, we'd all gone down presuming to see Kenny and and Sheen and all that lot, you know, and then there's this kid on this silver Yamaha, just, just, you know, and he's 18. I think you were 18. Yeah, and, it was and, first and, time I could ever race and, in a national and race. off yeah. he went, and he just left everyone. He didn't just beat them. He just disappeared. They didn't even see which way it went. He'd never seen the track before, and we were just stood there going... Uh, What's happened? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of one of those moments where you just... Wow, yeah. The silence of when I got up on the podium... <laughs> I mean, you could have heard a pin drop because no, I don't think he, everybody was just shocked, you know. But but the funny thing, Alan Wilson. You, you ever know who Alan Wilson? Alan Wilson at the time, and and I, Alan came over to the United States years later, and he's a track designer, and he built Salt Lake, and he would always tell the story 
about when I would I came up on the podium. He was the ma manager of the circuits of Brands and Olden and, and Mallory. And I get up there and I'm I'm smiling and he goes, Great ride. I go, That's Giacomo Agostini. You know, I'd never <laughs> met Ago before and Mike Hellwood. And uh it was true. And I Miss Trail was really nice. And they're looking at me like <laughs> You know, you should be focused on the fact you won the race, and that, and that was great. You know, of course, and and it was amazing, obviously. But what but the respect I have for those guys. Yeah. You know. what, what? How do they treat you after after that win? Because things must yeah. have changed a bit. Because when you arrived, obviously, well, you, that you day, on, yeah, yeah and, and, and there was two races that day, and I won the second one too. So everybody, it, it kind of worked out. It was good because everybody assumed, well, the guys the second race, you know, though, and I end up I won the second one too, but. It was good, obviously, um, and dramatic, obviously. And from you know that point, that changed everything in in the because everybody knew and and uh, the opportunities. I had already signed with Honda, you know, I had signed with Honda in the previous December, and so I was going to ride the superbike, which I did, superbike of the United States. I was the fourth rider on the team. They, they called me, and, and ever since I was a little kid, seeing that picture on the wall at, at Mr. Gorman's Honda dealership, I always found a race for Honda, Mr. Honda, or Honda someday. So I'm, I'm on the Honda team, the American Honda team. There's no Grand Prix program or anything. I signed with them when there was no HRC, you know, um, nothing other than the disaster at Silverstone. But I, I felt that's where I should, I should be. And they gave me the chance to ride the Yamaha with Irv. And a lot of people don't know this, you know, that I was already with Irv, but there was no place for Irv at Honda. And I risked losing Irv, you know. Um, but I, I, I told her, I, I knew, I just felt I was supposed to ride for Honda. So, but they said, okay, you can run Daytona, and, and that was pretty much it. So we added in, and they allowed me to add in the match races. And, um, and for them, it wasn't a bad thing for me to go out and get, gain this experience. The plan was always to make, you know, they didn't know at the time then our 500 would not be able to continue along or, or get somewhere. And, and there was probably already talk because at the end of 1980s when Air Majiri, you know, sat down with me and said, you know, we, we know the NR is not going to do it, but we're going to start this company and we're going to build a, a two-stroke for you to race. But it's not going to be in 81. And I stayed. You know, and they developed that program. So the opportunities that came along were really right at the right time. And so obviously Daytona, then the match races near him. I won both races. Um, it even allowed me to where I could yum uh, all Europe. Uh, I kind of had a bike that they prepared for me. I raced my first Grand Prix at Zolder in July. And, um, you know, everything was really, really taken off. What was the atmosphere like in the in the paddock with the other riders after that after those wins? Well, because it must have changed. The problem dramatically. is, yeah, and I, and I talk about this um, in story ring. It was it was difficult because it isolated. It began really isolating me in many ways. One, I was extremely shy anyway. Most people don't know I almost failed basically speech class in 1979, my last year in high school. I couldn't get up in front of my class of 12 students and do a speech at all. I'm serious. I was extremely, as a kid, I wouldn't even go to the line and get the trophy because they had a trophy girl. I'd go back to the pits, you know, and I was just really, really shy. So, you know, here I am 
I mean, literally a few months into my first season, I mean, Brands Hatch is 80,000 people, which is fine. You know, I've been racing, obviously, since I was six. But, you, you know, you, people immediately start treating you differently. And, um, and it was not easy. And, and there's the competition with the other riders. You know, at that time, specifically, I'm from Louisiana. All the other Americans are from California. And let me tell you, when I was a kid, it wasn't too many years, 1980 wasn't too many years apart, away from, just when we'd go to Shreveport, Louisiana, to Dallas, you would think we were going to another country. I mean, we were the outsiders. You know, I've been dealing with that since I was a little kid. You know, just people looking at you and... I mean, you know, racing in Kansas, for example, and I'd get put on the back road just because I won from Kansas, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's changed a lot in the last 40, 30, 40 years in that respect, where you have, you know, people now race, they go all over the country, and everybody's friends, and it's, it's, really, it's really changed. Everything's much more mixed up, isn't exactly. it? It's become globalized. Exactly, and plus you got TV, you have, inter you know, everything, and so there's, there's just, just that's where, that's where, um, you know, it has changed. And you think a lot. of you being shy, and, and, and then there being Barry Sheen. Yes. You know, a big show off, and Kenny Roberts, a big Kenny show being off. Kenny. Yeah, Kenny being so Kenny. So you kind yeah. of mix in with those guys. Yeah. And I, it only just occurred to me that, you know, if you were a little bit ostracized, it was kind of. Casey Stoner was a bit the same, you know, because mm. he was incredibly shy and had no interest. Well, not no interest in being famous, but actually hated being famous. Yeah, and really I, yeah, yeah. And, and and came in for a lot of stick from fans who didn't understand that him not wanting to sign autographs wasn't him being rude. It was just he was kind of terrified and and just you know. The, this is the thing too, and and I understand. I really do. Is you had the two? I mean, two incredible personalities in Barry and Kenny, and they they were second, third on both races. And they, though the fans, um, you know, they're the the veterans and the the world champions, and and you know sometimes it it makes it that makes it more difficult when you're you're dealing with that. But but I have to say, and this I really appreciated Barry from that very first day was extremely nice, good to me. He was him and Frank and Stephanie the and the mom, Mrs. Sheen, were extremely actually very 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 nice to me barry was the first person who hugged me after one of my first grand prix of course at imla he came on the track as i came across this he was happy i think for a lot of reasons since we know him and the kenny of course battles but but it, it was that respect it was different it's probably a lot of us american guys you know it was a little bit difficult i think um you know just just competitive yeah and but it, it wasn't so easy with Kenny, was it? I mean, was it tough when he was sort of saying that you were relying on divine intervention and things like that? Because I mean, it must have been quite difficult with him when. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it's it's yes. We we our personalities are a lot different um, in in so many ways, and and I'm not saying in good or bad at all. And I'm not saying that. Just our our way that we we approach approach things. Um, Kenny, actually, his race approach, and he was extremely good at it, was to be somewhat um, the mental approach, you know, the personality that he approached. And, and I, I talk about in a story where one of the things that he would do is he, and most people don't know this, 
because I never talked about it in him is he would come over in, in 83, for example, he would come over and come on motor home. He'd bring beer over, I have Dr. Pepper. Of course I knew that part of the reason he was in there, trying to figure out how to, how to beat me. I always understood that. I understood him, like I said, since first time I saw him, 80Y, when I was 11 years old. It's fascinating how things work out that way. I always felt one day I would race against him. In 79, I was ready to race against him in March of 79 at Daytona, but he crashed at Sugo and he, and he, when he ruptured his spleen. And remember, he, he, it was bad. And uh, Skip Asklin, um subbed for him at Daytona. And then so, you know, it, 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 this had been a long time. I understood him really well. And, and because of that, it made it, I could deal with him. Um, so he would, a lot of what he would say is just, just racecraft, you know, and I knew that, you know, and so I, I didn't let it bother me or get to me. And I'd been dealing with, with people that were older and since I was a little kid, you know, riding. I was always the youngest guy on the track. My first road race, I was 11 and the next youngest rider was 21. So, you know, I, I was always used to racing against, yeah. racing against yeah. you know, older people. Yeah. Um, so. You know, talking about the battles, obviously 1983, um, probably one of the greatest Grand Prix seasons ever um, and sort of edge of your seat stuff all the way through. Um, I've actually got a question here, which I was just gonna get from one of our readers. Um, from an N. Johnson um, saying, Swedish Grand Prix Anderstorp, 1983, can you share with us your thinking in that race? Um, you obviously, your pass on Roberts on the last lap and the aftermath of, of that move. Did, did, were you, at the time, thinking, if I don't win here, I've lost the championships? Um, you know, nowadays, riders seem to expect a last lap move, perhaps less so in the 1980s. Thanks. When we raced in April, uh, there was a race called the Imla 200. Back in those days, there was a lot of international races, less and less in the 80s and in the 70s and 60s. But it gave us an opportunity to race at Imola uh, before the, you know, before we would race there, which would go in the last race. After the race, I told Irv, I said, if it comes down to this race, we're, we're in trouble. With the five chicanes, um, the acceleration advantage of the V4s, especially in second, third, and fourth gear, was pretty dramatic. And dramatic, I mean, only five, six feet. But 15 feet is a, you know, is a lot, you know, three meters, you know, basically three or four meters. And so anyway, I told Irv, I said, you know, we'll see how the race goes on. The other thing we knew is, is that it was so important, those first three wins, um, South Africa, the French Grand Prix, and then, of course, Monza. Um, they were critical. As the season went on. Everything I felt in the beginning of the season was exactly right. Uh, we got to the mid, mid part, and of course, as Yama always would in those days, they would get an upgrade around Assen, the Dutch Grand Prix. And, um, and Kenny's acceleration advantage really increased. By the time we got to Silverstone with three races to go, I couldn't even get within the same second of him at Silverstone. I mean, on Friday afternoon, in the second practice with about 15 minutes to go, I'm sitting there and my, my shoulders are slumped. I mean, I'm in the back of the garage. I, I told her, I cannot go in the corner any deeper. I can't get on the throttle any sooner. There's no more racetrack for me to use. The curb, you know, is stopping me basically. And I'm saving it in most corners on my knee. And if I don't get up to the throttle at the right moment and get through the power band where it hits at the right time, I have so much lean angle on the front end so tuck because I'm having to get on the throttle so aggressively so early, I can't save it. And every corner is that way. Every lap, every corner. That's what people don't see, right? 
but it, it's like that. And so I'm sitting in the garage, and so I, it, it's kind of a, a, another part of the story. But I'm sitting there, and and I'm I'm thinking that I don't know how I'm going to get second because there's no way I'm, I can I can run with Kenny. And Eddie, as the year went on, was getting stronger and stronger as Eddie always does, and that's why he's steady. You know, he he builds and he, you know he gets there, and once he's there, he's tough. But he was getting stronger and stronger. He hadn't been in a position to really beat me yet, but this was going to be the first weekend, and I knew that at Silverstone for many reasons. So go out and able to qualify second quickest, barely. And um, we get to the race, and in the race, a couple of things happened that worked in our favor. One is, is um, you know, Kenny goes, and then it's Randy on the Suzuki and Eddie on the Yamaha, and we're battling. And I'm hanging on, hanging on, hanging on, and it starts to rain at just, just the right moment. And I didn't slow down. I kept pushing. I was able to get a, a couple of seconds, about 1.8 second advantage. They threw the red flag. They're going to do an aggregate now where they're going to restart with about 10 laps to go. And they'll combine the times. And when they restarted, it was dry. And uh, as it turned out, I was barely able to hang on. I got fourth in it. But because I got second and the time difference, I got second by thousands. It was like four thousands of a second. It was really, really close. That set up Sweden. And and I say that because understand now, I'd already knew that Imola was going to be difficult. If I could get through Silverstone with the point lead, which I did, Sweden was obviously the critical weekend. I knew that. And I go out and practice and I am unbelievably quick. And I qualify like um, over a second quicker, about a second and, and four or five tenths quicker than Kenny, thinking it's going to be great, right? We start the race, and Kenny had been sandbagging, which was perfect, right? And he suckered me into that. I'd, I'd worked on setup and all that stuff, but I had such an advantage, and I, and I should have known. The first ten laps of the race, all I'm doing is kicking myself because I fell for that. There, I should have known. There's no way. Yeah, maybe three or four tenths, but not a second or so, right? But it made me smile because I thought I was, that, was, that was really good, you know? So I'm hanging on. And normally what would happen in the races those years is I would get out in front, push, push, push. He'd run me down. He'd get in front. The Dunlops would last about four or five laps longer. I would hang on, hang on. Then it would even out, and then we'd be in for a battle because the Yamaha and the Hondas, different characteristics, our riding style different, and we put on – it was good racing. Not today. I mean, I he got in front of me, and I am just barely hanging on lap after lap. He's not slowing down because he could run that pace real easy. And, you know, he was running what we were – what I qualified at, you know. And – uh you know, so with about six laps to go, Sweden is is a difficult track to pass on. There's just because it's really bumpy, and um, and his Yamaha, a lot of second, third gear corners, and so he was getting me off the corners. There's short shoots in between, which didn't allow the three cylinder to really get running. So I couldn't get close enough for the brakes. So anyway, with about f six laps to go. The only choice I had that I could figure out as, as we're racing 
is the last corner lean on the back straightaway is banked, and and it rolls off on the exit. So I was I thought very simply, if I could get him to tighten up his entry, and run more lean angle, it means he's going to come off the corner with a little more lean angle. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's the only thing I can think which would affect his drive on the back straightaway. So going into the last lap, um, that right hander going on to the back straightaway. I've been showing him a wheel for lap after lap after lap, and sure enough, he f he fades in and goes in low, thinking I was going to maybe try to pass him. And I go up high, and I get the best drive onto the back straightaway. He comes off, it rolls off, and as it rolls off, because he's got more lean angle, it breaks traction and wheelies. The only lap it did the entire race was that lap. And I get my best drive, and it's the only time going down the back straightaway that I could get beyond it just in his draft. And I was able to get a run and get next to him. And as we're going on the back straightaway, Sweden really narrows up, and it kind of is a right angle going into this right-hander, which is a 90-degree little short shoot and a 90-degree start-finish line. And as we're going down the back straightaway, this is exactly what happened. I got it next to him, and you know we're probably doing about 160, maybe 165, maybe a little bit more. And normally, what you do is your peripheral vision is everything. And as you get up next to someone, and because you know your focus has to be exactly in front of you, so your peripheral vision is what you really pay attention to. And as I'm coming up next to him, we all do the same. As we roll off, we get on the brakes, roll off throttle brakes, sit up all in one motion, and. Um, and just at the last split second, as we're going along, my provision, I turn, kind of turn my eyes to his hand. And it's the only time I ever did it all year. Before, I, never, I didn't do it after that. And sure enough, when he set up, he didn't roll off throttle. And because he didn't roll off the throttle, I wasn't going to. <laughs> that, I can promise you. I was not, if, however deep we were going to get in there, we were going to get in that deep. And, uh, and of course, because he hesitated and waited longer I did too now we're both in way 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 too deep and I'm on the inside and and as we get to that that right hander sure we're, I'm wide and he's we're both wide we did not touch but from the angle and I understand from the angle because they didn't allow photographers down in that part of the track um, it looks like we maybe touched and and certainly he got off track I was too and when he got on the throttle the bike did this because he had the better angle on me, and but he had to roll off and I got under him and the next picture is me in front of him going on the front straightaway. I won the race, as everybody knows. There's a picture of us on the the, the car going around and it's probably the only time in the history of Grand Prix racing you're gonna see the winner on one side, third place in the middle and second place in that. Kenny was extremely upset. And his main thing he was saying was, I can't believe you did that. And I said, you would have done the exact same thing. What, I mean, you know. And, but I understand because the key was, I know why, what his frustration was. It's all the thing that led up to that. Getting on the back straightaway, the fact of moving over, you know, did not allow me to have a line. And there was a lot of reasons, you know. And for years, we... I mean, I could tell you stories about being at a thing at, at Suzuka, and, and um, he would, you know, just being Kenny. We almost became like a stick, you know. I mean, he's still upset. And, but a couple of years ago, we were doing an event in Japan, and I was up on the podium, and, and it was the first time I'd said this publicly. 
because the question would always come up about about Sweden, and I said, I want to say something. I said, you know, some people might say I have a gift. We all do. You know, it's what we do. But it, but to compete with this man, it took everything I had, ability-wise, effort-wise, focus-wise. It made me the racer that I became from watching him as a kid to that day I beat him for the world championship. And I want to thank him. And from that moment on, the relationship's been different. <laughs> because I think there's probably, and it's my own fault, I never, I never publicly said that. And I think it meant a lot to Kenny, you know, because one thing that I, he knows, and he said this to me after Emma, the only thing he said to me after the, the podium at Emma, when I, when I got second and won the world championship, and it was the greatest compliment he could say, was I gave it all I had, and he walked off. You know. Yeah, I mean, he he uh, yeah, he's kind of still sore about it now, which I, I think is it is a wonderful thing in a way because it just shows you what these things you what know, it means. Wh- wh- how yeah, sure. we are thirty five yeah, years later, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> or thirty three years later or whatever yeah. it is, um, and I think that just gives you some kind of i uh, gives a normal person some kind of idea of the depth of feeling. And and mm-hmm. and s- psychology and everything that's sure. going into this. It's everything. It's races, everything you yeah. got. I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, I, I must say, I think that's probably the best answer to a reader's question we've ever had on on a motorsport podcast. So, um, and Johnson, Fre- Freddie, Freddie is kind <laughs> of fairly unique amongst racers, I would say, for pretty much remembering every gear yeah, change. Total and, and, and we'll amazing. be able to not only remember the gear change, but tell you why he did it at that RPM. Mm-hmm. At on the on the camera of the track the way it was and it's fantastic yeah mm-hmm. amazing um Thanks, uh, fast forwarding to to 1985 yes um the you know historic another historic year um and winning the world title 250 and 500 both titles um it's something that will never be repeated um i mean it's it's, it's like marquez doing moto 2 and moto gp winning both titles I mean, it's it's quite incredible i there's a the guy in the office um damon who does the design for the magazine and he was he was fascinated as to how um just logistically you managed it we'll get to all the other bits and pieces in a second but i mean you were jumping off one bike you sometimes you didn't even have time to change your leathers to, uh, just no, talk no. us through how on earth you you managed that well when we the the idea came up which was for me um like for Kui, there's there was talk of wanting to do a 250. They at Honda had built this 250, uh, basically based on a production engine in 84. And, and Joey Dunlop was actually riding it some, and, and um, it wasn't very good. But certainly they eventually wanted to get in a 250 program, and I know that. And, and the 84 season wasn't going that well, and we decided, or I decided, it was actually on the... As I was coming in the pits at, at Aston, the Dutch Grand Prix, after leading the race, coming back from injuries, and it was just the beginning of really what eventually would be the end for me um, in a few years, just just how things had changed. You know, I could jump off a bike in 1980 at Charlotte and get up and walk away, you know. But it's how things happen. But here, the 84 bike was just not that, you know, consistent and we were we were struggling and i set the crew down after the dutch crown on saturday and and um at Aston in june 84 and i said well why don't we try to do two championships 
that was the fir- that was the easiest thing that I said. That was the easiest part of it. It would get more difficult <laughs> from there because one, we didn't even have a bike. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have a 250, but it, it was amazing because that actually, I believe, and we've talked about that years later, Kanazawa and Hiroki and I, that really it was that is, was the impetus that obviously built the NSR 250 because it gave Hiroki a clean sheet of paper. It was also what, what led to the NSR, the, the 500, you know, the 85 bike, which would go on as be the most successful bike in Grand Prix racing history. I'm very proud of that, actually. But... The, the part that we hadn't considered in these first talks was the things that I thought about as I got into more into it. And, and the first day of testing in Australia, we, we were, this was the beginning of uh, I was going to Australia to test. I sit down my crew because at the time, the way we would test is you would have this, this sheets of paper. And, you know, that the engineers have, you know, you go try this engine combination, these pipe combinations, all these things. And they'll have list after list after list. Michelin brought down about 250 tires for me to test. Not all of them, but because they would be in different families. But to weed through them and see what construction, what compound. It's just me. I'm the only rider. And so we have all these things, and we're going over the list. We're sitting around a table, and and what a great crew I had. I had Irv Kanemoto, Jerry Burgess was one of my 500 mechanics, George Vukmanovic, had Stuart Shenton, who was on the 250 program, all these guys that have, what, about 30, 15, 20 world titles now. But, you know, and we're all going down this list, and I stopped everybody, and I said, I said, okay, we can test the bikes and we can get them. But if I can't adapt to it, and I, you know, granted, I've always been able to, but never tried it at this level. I've never raced a 250 outside the United States. There was a lot of unknowns, really. Could I compete against a Tony Mang and a Carlos Lovato? I mean, these guys. You know, I felt I could, but, but I said, so the key's going to be is two things. Is when we earn practice at that time specifically, there was no gap in between practice sessions. I mean, when one would come in, the other one would be going out as soon as the track was clear because they had quite a few classes. That's one. So I can't sit down with the 250 crew and say, you know, we want to change this. I got to go out on the 500. I can't lose time. So the key is going to be is me being able to differentiate, sit down afterwards and go through and say, okay, the 250, we meet and talk about it. That's one. So I said during testing, I want to go out and do back-to-back stuff, like if, if we were on a race weekend. Again, understanding the practicing part and, and refining that. That was one. And then, and then, like I said, my ability to be able to uh, get up to speed on the siding lap because I'm, I'm, I was a field rider. I didn't, I didn't use braking markers or anything, really. So everything I did was, was anticipating. And so that means that I have to really be in tune with the bike immediately. Um, and then, obviously, the third is trying to get the bikes as close as we could, even though the riding styles were completely different. So, you know, if you talk about kind of the structure part, that was, that was my focus. And I, I think that probably one of the toughest weekends that year was Mugello. Oh, without question. The, yeah, I mean, it, just talk us through that weekend, because yeah. it, it was extremely hot. And, I mean, st- pretty much every rider, I think, Matt, you'll remember much better than me, but every rider, even just after the 500 race, was absolutely finished. Yes. And then you had to jump on your 250. Well, well, it was it was a rare weekend. It's always hot in Mugello, but the 500 race was first. It only happened a couple of times that year. Well, that and, was and another, another of the things that, you know, yeah. 
Freddie couldn't just get used to riding the five, racing the five, 250 and then racing the 500. You know, one weekend it would be the 251st, then the 500. The next weekend it would be 500 first, then yes. the 250. So. Yeah, the organizers. So, you know, I mean, yeah, exactly. The organizers in we were so specific. In, in, in Spain, for example, they run the 500 race first before lunch because Juan Carlos, the king Juan Carlos, he needed to get back to the palace in the afternoon. Probably had to do his stuff around the yard, you know. <laughs> no, but it, all seriousness, it, it was it was very it was unique. And and that day at Magello, the 500 race was first, and um, and I didn't get a very good start, so I had to come through a little bit of the pack and and had a really good battle with with um, Eddie and Christian, and in I win the race, and so I'm, I'm standing on the podium and you know we do champagne, and um, and. Barely after the national anthem, I hear the 250s leaving the cold the paddock because they would have a, a cold paddock they would call. And then you'd go out and then you go to start line and then, you know, everybody do what they do. You take your helmets off. But, and then do the siding lap or the warm-up lap, excuse me, and then come back and we'd start the race. But the 250s are leaving the thing. Well, normally I'd have at least a little bit of time to drink two bottles of water was my minimum, big liters. And I could change maybe my leathers, maybe, you know, some races. But this one, they were heading out. And I'll never forget this. I'm sitting there, and so I can't drink the champagne, so I go to hand it to Eddie. And Eddie, all Eddie does, he looks at me and goes, better you than me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and Eddie's, no smile, just better you than me. <laughs> Thanks, you know, I'm okay. And so I, I run, literally run, to the, to the cold paddock. And, and, and I, I appreciated this, this part. The only bike that was there was Tony Mayne. And I, and I walk up, and Tony and I would hardly never talk. Tony doesn't talk that much, you know. He's, he's a great rider, but he just doesn't say that much. And I walk over, and I, and I go to the thing, and he goes, and all he does is just nods his head. He goes, I would have waited till you were ready. So, and so I, I really respected that and appreciated that. And, and uh, so I go out, do the sign lap. I'm sitting there. I, feel, I think I feel fine, you know. And have a little bit, at least a little bit of water. And then do the warm-up lap, come back, kill the engine. And I go to, you know, and go to push start it, they throw the flag, and I'm pushing, I know I'm pushing, I feel normal. The problem is all these bikes are just, you know, everybody's going by me. And I told her right before, I said, the main thing I gotta do is get a good start. That's my most important thing, I gotta get start so I can get up there and, cause I, I could tell I felt a little bit tired. I just didn't know how tired I was. My legs just wouldn't move. And uh, that dropped you to 19. I was yeah. 19th, yeah, 19th at first lap. And and this is part, you know, in our helmets, we're just like everybody else. You know, I'm thinking, great, you know. I couldn't have put myself in a worse position. And what was the whole thing about why I couldn't? I'm actually thinking, why I couldn't get a good start? I know I was pushing, you know. And anyway, I got got a third win, probably no second, third win. And I and I get up and I catch. Carlos and Tony and I ended up winning the race and it was the first weekend that I won both races and without question it was it was probably one of the greatest days ever because um you know you you think you can do it win both races and and until you do uh but when it happens and the fact of kind of what I overcame it was it was a great day yes Matt you I mean you did a lot of endurance racing, so you know you, you know what it's like racing for a prolonged period. But I mean, can you just describe what it must you know what it must mean? I mean, what kind I mean, of I mean, endurance of racing and Grand Prix is very different. You know, endurance you're going round kind of fast, but you're not on the edge. 
Whereas obviously in Grand Prix racing, you've got to be on the edge. So I can't even begin to imagine. I could almost imagine doing a 250 race and then going on to the 500. But to yeah. do it the other way around, wow. You know, where whether you've ridden this, you know, they weren't, they were not easy motorcycles to ride then, especially at that time. Um, you know, the engines had got quite a long way ahead of the chassis and ahead mm. of the tires. Yeah, true. Um, so they took a lot of fighting, a lot of physicality and yes. a lot of... Um, bit of a wing and a prayer really so, so to do a 500 race beat Eddie Lawson <laughs> and in, in what sort of uh, pretty much 40 degree heat mm. and then go straight out on a 250 and, mm. and win that I'd yeah I'd, I can't even begin to imagine what that would be like no yeah. <laughs> rather than me as you, were, as you were told on the podium well this this <laughs> is the thing and, and Matt is is true is it the the most the, the difficult part was not just the physical part, but it's the it's the focus part. A 500, for example, just between at and Magello, as you come over the rise and into that first right hander, and then you know the left, the first left that sets up the S's, to get the bike from mid corner to the right position in that next corner required about five different things, because one is the the throttle response if it was just a few hundred RPM off, was completely different. And it would come in, the power would come in. And as the race goes on, you have no grip because the grip would go away. So now you're trying to get the bike just pointed in the right direction. And, and, you, and sometimes it's going to do this and move this way. Sometimes it, it won't. And so you, you're, sometimes you just don't know until it happens. And then now, you know, as the race goes on, I know with me, because I, I like brakes with a lot of feel. The brakes would fade. It'd come all the way back to the bars. And so, you know, you, you anticipate that. And just the bike, because of the nature of a two-stroke engine, was so inconsistent in the throttle response at that time in the, the way the power did, you know, the speed differences. And it would just jump. And now you have to react to it. And, and the challenge of that is, as we were just saying, and you're doing it on the very edge. A great story of Nick Einach, who is my instructor, uh, a, a really good writer, national championship writer in the United States, and he's a good writer, journal, you know, writer. He writes great stories. And we were doing the school, and this was in, in the late 90s when I started my school in Las Vegas. And he had the best description, really, of someone that I heard talk about that wasn't used to riding a 500. He said, you know, I've ridden two strokes my life. He's won national championships in the United States on 250s and different bikes. He said, but when I rode a 500, the most difficult thing I found was not just to ride it, but what I couldn't imagine is, is riding it around other riders. That's the part that I think people don't realize is we're doing it within inches of each other. Try, and this bike is basically hard to control within three feet, you know. And it, it's, it is just... You know, it's why I'd rub the gas tank every morning. You're gonna be good to me today, you know. <laughs> but but it it was also uh, what a privilege that was to obviously to do it. So I I wouldn't trade ever bump bump and scratch have for anything. But but when Nick said that, he was telling the the, the students, and it made me smile. He looked at me. He said, "That is the part I couldn't imagine having to do is to actually race it. I could figure out how to ride by myself, but to race it." When you say, Matt, I mean, they're so difficult to anticipate, uh, you know. Yeah. I, I tested a few, yeah. you know, years back. And, and, you know, I used to love riding the 250s because they were just like a 
you know, the perfect motorcycle, yes. you know, just, but I, I, I was just a passenger on the 500. Yeah, you well, know, I was just many times we were, well, all of us were in many ways. Hope yeah. for the best and scare myself <laughs> and, and would never come to even beginning to understand the thing, apart from the fact that it was just a kind of missile, basically, you know, with wheels on, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, usually we, tr we try and keep these podcasts to an hour, but as long mm. as it's okay with you, Freddie, I'm afraid we're going to run over a little bit because sure, sure. it's, 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 it's so uh, such great um, sort of content. Um, I would obviously, after 1985, that incredible um, groundbreaking, record-breaking season, it, it all changed mm. um, very sure. quickly. And I th it, was, it was the opening race of 86 when the wrist froze up. Mm -hmm. Just what what ha what happens and how did this was it was it because of doing too much or it's probably a combination of years and and it had been bothering me for a while, but mainly it was focused in my hand, um, and certainly I had some burning in my wrist, not so much in my forearm. You know, I I had hurt heard all of it at the Spanish Grand Prix actually. It's kind of ironic the year before in 85 in, in the morning warm-up. And anyway, I just kind of would go through it. I didn't – it was never an issue of – you deal with – you you race injured, you know, most – a lot of times, obviously. So, you know, dealing with the pain and even the numbness and things I dealt with for a while. And I didn't, I didn't ride for eight months, actually, after the Swedish Grand Prix until the week before that race. I didn't never even rode, didn't ride a motorcycle. I trained really hard. I was in the best shape I'd ever been in, even better than '85. When I started training in January, I didn't go test or anything. January, February, March, and then to show up to the Spanish Grand Prix the week before, because they had a seven-day rule where you couldn't test at a at a track. But I was able to do one day, and it felt you know it felt okay. And then the race weekend on Friday. I uh, went out and um, was second quickest in the morning. In the afternoon, I got pole and, and had pole for the race. Started the race, <coughs> excuse me, started the race and uh, was leading about 11 second lead with 10 laps to go. Wayne was second. Wayne Gardner and Eddie was third. I was coming down the hill. It's um, there's a, in the very back of the track. It's right, it's double right, and then there's a downhill left. It goes to the hairpin down at the bottom. And it had been going numb and things as the race went on. But this particular time, I went into the corner, and I squeezed the brake, and nothing happened. I mean, nothing happened. I never experienced that before in my life. And I went off the racetrack. Well, I locked up the rear brake, you know, and... You know, in being in first gear, I just banged down the gears. I slipped the clutch because it was chattering and used the rear brake and kind of ran off the track and, and got back on and, and then made one lap. And it went better, and I, and I came in. And the thing is, is that what, what I never talked about at the time was, is that was the most traumatic thing for me. I, basically, it was almost, I didn't know what to do. And um, so I, I came in and... Uh, my the the crew, uh, the Japanese crew, uh, or of course, but but Japanese crew, and they had they were they had t they were crying. And it was it was the most difficult thing, and it wasn't just the fact I felt, you know, for me, if saying I felt bad for me would not be really the case. It was just I didn't know what to do, and and that happened. And what what is what was that, you know? And why did it mean? And, and in the story, I'm right to become I, I I talk about all that, and what led up to that, and. And afterwards, 
and I can imagine from the outside the difficulty is, you know, of understanding because nobody, you know, basically I'd ridden a motorcycle once a week before, and now it's a race weekend, and and it looks like it's all back to normal, you know. I'm world champion, and I'm leading the race, and um, and then it just such a an unusual dramatic thing happened, and go to the you know I'm sitting there nobody knows what to say I'm sitting in my motorhome and they you know I need to come out and and talk I go to the press conference and the first question I get asked was you could see that in just the tension level you know between me and them and or me and them the journalists and I press and I don't know what to say and but the first question I get asked was um did you come in because you wanted more money? Journalists. You just, just can't excuse them. Can no, you? well, it's, I mean, the thing is, you know, and today, of course, you know, I would talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it on the show, but you'll read about it. Is what I, I would have said. I know exactly what I was said today. And the thing is, is that, but at the time, you know, my response was, I, I never, had, I was not known for being sarcastic. I wasn't. I mean, because I don't really think that way. And I still don't. But it was hard because I was. It was more anger I felt, and 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 it wasn't. It really wasn't the press. It was the anger I felt of of being in this situation, of it happening, of the difficulty of I didn't of of not knowing what the issue is, or or why it happened, or or what happened, and and um, and that was that was the most difficult part about it, and. And then, you know, I go to, to the next race. Anyway, we get through that. I get asked those questions. I try to talk about it best I can. And I go back. And, um, you know, I certainly have swelling, all these things. We didn't know the extent of the damage that went in months later, a few months later. But we go to the next race at Salzburg, and I'm up front. That's not an issue. I go into the chicane. And it's the only time I had this happen. I come out of chicane and it, a little head shake, and it, the steering dampener comes out of the frame. It was the strangest thing. Never had ever. I, I've never even heard of that happening. And you can't ride a 500 without a steering dampener. I, try, I mean, it just it would shake the bars out of my hand. And and I want to tell you exactly what I thought is there's. I thought I'm just going to stay out here. I don't care what happens because coming in and having to explain that I'm having to stop. You know. And and I didn't want to do that, you know, and uh, and then it just wasn't getting any better. That actually made it worse. And so, you know, next is I'm going through all these tests, and you know, um, you know, because nobody back nobody there was no such thing as carpal tunnel back then. Nobody ever heard anything like that, you know, or. Um, arm pump or whatever. Or you want any to call of that. It, yeah. yeah, and it, that was the straight trick. I really wasn't getting any arm pump except straining from trying to hang on when I, I didn't have any strength in my hand. And that's basically what was happening is the nerve signal was just basically getting cut off and, and I just had no strength. So I started end up damaging other, some other things, but that had been building for, see, for about a year or so. And uh, what I thought was a strange, a, a strained, um, tricep muscle was basically was more the of straining my arm trying to hang on and so you know it just went downhill from there um so am i right in thinking you have a book coming out 
Um, yeah, so it'd be out. It'd come out. Be out it, in April. Because everyone listening, I'm sure, will will want to get it. So out in yeah. April next year. April, yes. Yeah. It'd be a, at first be out here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, d- 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 watch out for it, everyone. Um, d- I'm just going to take a quick question before we move on to the sure. to the Hall of Fame. Um, there's one from from Matt here, um, who recently went to the Honda collection at, um, in Japan and was stunned by the amazing collection of bikes and cars racing and road. Um, he was wondering, what, what was the nicest perk you received from Honda, um, and besides the wins and titles? Did you, did you keep, keep the bikes, or did they give you anything like that? I had, I had a couple of bikes. One of them, actually, my favorite bike um, is, at the cle- is in the collection hall, um, the inline. It was the last... The best way to describe the bike, the original Honda Superbikes, and all the, most, a lot of the Superbikes at the time were like this, but the Honda specifically, it was just a beast. It was a 1,000cc inline, um, four-in-one exhaust, and, and I won Daytona on it the last year in 82. And on the way back from Daytona, the truck dropped it off of my Honda dealership. And, I mean, this bike was just like it rolled off the track, which was unusual. You know, most of the time when they would give bikes back in those days, if if they would give you one, it would be basically everything would be taken out of it. But this was exactly how it rolled off the track. And uh, I had that bike for years, and I ended up um, letting the museum have it. And then that way people could, li- they could restore it and listen to it and things. And um, I had a couple other bikes. I don't have them anymore. Um, and at a 250, and uh, but the one bike I do have that Honda built for me was an FTR uh, 250. Do you, you ever seen those? Those FTRs? The, it's the very first one built, and the reason why was is they built it like a train. It was a flat tracker basically, and they still sell them today as a street bikes kind of uh, street trackers. They call them. They sell them in Japan, and I still have that in my storage room in Shreveport, and. And, uh, you know, most things that I really, really like um, that I have is things when I, from when I was a kid. Things of, like, my original helmets, um, leathers. You know, it, was, it reminds me when my dad and I traveled in that van. In fact, my, my, great, my memory, last memory with my dad before he passed away in 89 was I went back to see him. I just got on the plane and went back to see him. And it was a month later, he was gone. And I hadn't been home in months. And when I, I went and spent three days, and it was the greatest gift I felt like I was given because if that is what I remember, and so I don't have any regrets. I told Dad I loved him. We talked about things, not my Grand Prix, because he'd only went to one Grand Prix race. But what we talked about was all those years riding around in the van, and it made him smile. And that's that's my last memory of with my dad. And so all the stuff that I have that means the most to me is from that uh, from that time. Lovely story. So we should we should move on to the Hall of Fame. Um, I'm I'm wary that we sorry we've already run over, but we we've got time to do this. So obviously every year we have this the yes. Hall of Fame event, and uh, we need to come up with twelve names um, that are going to go into the pot for the public to vote on. Um, already in there in the in the motorcycling world, Valentino Rossi from this year. John McGuinness, John Surtees, obviously straddles cars and bikes, and Ago um, as well. Again, straddles cars and bikes. Um, last year, the nominations were, just so everyone knows who's listening, Mike Halewood, Joey Dunlop, yourself, of course, um, Casey Stoner, Barry Sheen, Kevin Schwantz, Kenny Roberts, Wayne Rainey, Eddie Lawson, Mick Dern, and Jeff Duke. Um, obviously, Valentino Rossi is in, 
So he, that name is crossed off the list already. Um, and so we need to any new names that we can, we can put into the pot um, and we can then argue about which of these we drop out for, for this year. Um, so throw in any names you'd like. Wow, that's obviously... It's, it's quite an A-list. Yes, <laughs> it is, it yeah. is. This is the, you know, we were talking about this before with, with Matt, and actually in terms of new names to go in there, I mean, if you're thinking like top, top tier, they really are the top, top tier, but we'd, yeah, we've obviously got to have someone to replace, replace Valentino. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, well, it's quite a, it's, uh, quite a list. So the, the who, else, wh 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 who else would you put in after, outside of that lot, Freddie? Mm. Is there anybody that springs straight... So sort of sometimes a name comes straight into your and head, it, and it doesn't. It doesn't just have to. It doesn't have to just be a rider either. You know, it could be an engineer. I mean, you know, Jeremy Burgess. We were, you know, we were talking about. It. it could be someone like that. And and the Hall of Fame isn't just about stats. It's about sure. Um, I understand. You know, yeah, what you kind of, yeah, sort of, of course, bring to the of sport. Course, and of course, um, as it should be. Yeah, yeah. as it should be. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it, we, we, are there any sort of top line engineers that you can think of that actually they change the the way. The approach well, you'd, to it. you'd have to start at the top with Sashiro Honda, wouldn't you? Really? Yeah. Yes. Well, he might yeah. already be in the Hall of Fame. No, 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 he's um, not. I mean, that, that's actually uh, a, a, a good chance. Yes, because <laughs> he was actually someone I thought about because we were just talking about, and someone that um, understood the entire part. That was what was so impressive that day I met him, um, because I'd been with Honda for three years before I met him. Was not only his passion, but his clarity and what his purpose was and, uh, and his contribution. And it's like he told me that day, you know, he, when he started the company in his garage, he was going to get to the Isle of Man and he wanted to win the 500 World Championship. And, um, you know, that's why I was in his house. And so, you know, someone like him would be, because he transcends just Honda, you know, it's, yeah. it's motorcycling. Yeah. And, uh, well, it's interesting. Yeah. We had Enzo Ferrari was a founding member of the Hall of Fame, but mm. you know he's in there obviously because of who he is, but also because of what Ferrari has done for the sport. So in, in the same Mr. way, Mr. Honda it, would yeah, be, Mr. Think Honda, would be great. and, and yeah. you know, and it's not just the kind of you know to me the greatest Honda of all time is probably the Super Cup, you, you know, the the C ninety. Sure, <laughs> you know, because, yeah, the I way mean, it changed. You think how many? Well, I don't know how many million of those that they've made and, right. and, and changed the world. You know, you're yeah. not just talking about you know wonderful motorcycles Absolutely. like the NSR 500 that we all worship and of so course. On. you're actually talking about a motorcycle that has actually changed the world you know but by, by putting people on the road by by changing the way people live by and so on and so forth well mr honda for sure one of his people that he looked to was henry ford look what he did with the model t it changed what cars was mr honda gave people that wouldn't get the chance the opportunity to enjoy this great sport of ours yeah Okay, so we, we d that's I think Mr. Honda is a, is a very worthy replacement of uh, for for Valentino, um, who's who's obviously in there already. Uh, are there any? You know, obviously we we've got Mr. Honda in there, but are there any engineers? I mean, Jeremy Burgess, he had so much success with Rossi, and obviously, you, you know, he's been around for the sport well, with for a with long Freddie, time. with yes. with, um, with Wayne, with, Wayne, with yeah. uh, I mean, is, is there a more successful with, with McDoohan? Right. Uh, I, I don't think there's a more successful crew chief, and, and right. unless you were to look at someone like Arturo Magni from MV, who was looking after Ago, but uh, you know, again, you know, we know that Ago won on two strokes, uh, four strokes, and two strokes. You know, it was a time when MV were kind of pretty much the only factory involved. So it's a bit of a weird time. Yeah. But 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 JB would certainly be 
and, and, and he would actually say that he's not an engineer. Right. right. He's, no, he's, 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 right. he's, he's Sorry, not got the words. Yeah. You know, he's a self-taught, like a lot of people in motorcycling, yes. um, self-taught from, from, the, from the bottom up right. kind of thing. You know? Well, I always, uh, my, in my 85 season, I could tell I won out of the seven Grand Prix, I won five of them on the 500 class was on Jerry's bike. And the difference, even though they're exactly the same, is I think it was the way he prepared it. There's such a connection of, of someone's approach. But one other person I like to throw out there would be Irv. You know, a lot of people forget not only, you know, Irv with Honda, of course, and he had his own team. But for me, Irv, what made Irv great was what he could do in that little storage room in San Jose, California, when he was working on that 125 single in 1979, in the winter of 79, getting ready for 80. And when he built, took that on the bench, because he could only afford a, a little bench, you know, uh, um, and um, so, you know, to test the horsepower. And we show up at Daytona and we're competing against Kenny in the Works Yamaha's. And, uh, you know, he, he designed the chassis, he had CNJ build it. And, and of course, he was an incredible engine, two stroke engine engineer. And, uh, you know, when we were um, in those first years with HRC, it was Irv who had a tremendous amount of impact on what we needed from the racetrack. And I could feel it, you know, and, and we could talk about it to tell the engineers what it would take. And he, he was responsible for a lot of that increase, you know, rapid increase in, in our competitiveness in 82, 83. And so Irv would be yeah, certainly yeah, a yeah. person. Yeah, but, sure. but he was incredible Absolutely. in that respect. When he yeah. worked on Kawasaki's, he worked on Yamaha's, then he worked with Honda's. And right. he, you know, he, he did everything, two-stroke, four-stroke. Yeah. You know, well, he was a two-stroke man, but, um, you know, he did it all, really. Yes, I, I think it'd be quite interesting to have some some non-engineers, crew chiefs, sorry, um, and some of these these names in here. So I mean, I, I, it, is it worthy to put Jeremy and Irvin? Why not? Kind of yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's the problem with that, though, <laughs> is we then need to lose two names from this list. Um, well, you can take easy. me out. I, no, I'll no, tell no, you what, no, take no, me no, out. Put no, Irvin. I'll tell you what, Freddie. <laughs> I'm going to give you a tick. So that's that means you're in. Into the well, nomination pot. No, so put Irv in there. Irv should be. <laughs> I know I Freddie's. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, Casey Stoner, amazing. What the talent and what he managed, but is he? Is he? Yeah, in the same I, I would have him in there definitely yeah, because okay. because um, me and a few other people on Twitter a few days ago were kind of discussing, you know, the, this thing of riders who, you know, there's the riders who build up the great stats, and then there's guys who who you look at ride and you just think, oh my God, how are they doing that? And Freddie was one of those, Kenny was one of those, Casey was one of those, and Mark Marquez is one of those. Yeah. And uh, uh, those four I would put almost in a separate compartment from everyone else. You know, there was just right. something sublime, something ethereal, something otherworldly about the way they could ride a motorbike, you know. Mm. Um, okay, so Casey def definitely in then. Um, Chwonson Cheen, um, I'd, I'd, I'd I don't want to be the one to suggest dropping Barry out because I think I might get taken outside and. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I I would happily say that I. Pure riding genius. I don't think Sheen would be up there with um, quite a few of those other guys. But yeah, you know, he he made up he, yeah. for that. I mean, you what he a he won two world titles. Yeah, in '82, um, that first year we raced that battle uh, that Kenny and Barry and I had at, at Argentina. I mean, he was right there with Kenny and I. 
And, you know, he won in Sweden. His last Grand Prix win was with Irv. In yep. the, and Irv had told me, um, after I'd seen him in, in Belgium, and he thought they would they would do well. And yeah. I, so I, I guess if he hadn't had that accident at yeah, Silverstone, at yeah, that's exactly he right. might well have proved then that he really was better better yeah. than perhaps I'm giving him credit yeah, for because, I, I, because I he was so. he was back on the crest of a wave then he was, wasn't he he'd been he through was. some tough years yeah. on some fairly very average Yamahas yeah. Yeah. And, and was really coming I back there so think, so maybe I think it's there's, there's, there's an element there. of Barry the, the character that he was mm. kind of epitomizing what I think is quite fun to have in the hall absolutely his contribution outside the sport was incredible the the level as certainly here in the UK but everywhere really and uh, and and the other thing that that I respect about Barry so much was he would not walk away until the last fan had their autograph and and that was a great example uh, that I I saw in him well I think that for me just that little story I, I'm gonna I'd be yep. bossy and put my foot down so yep, I, 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 I yep. completely take yep. a point so uh, we do we do need to lose a couple um, from from this list, so we got. I mean, yeah, jo- Joey as well. Such a character, um, and so successful at TT. I mean, yeah, you, he's he's got to be in there. I would yeah. say. Just yeah. for I don't TT know how we're going to do this. It's, it's not easy. I think is we it? might have to sort it out later. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> off I, camera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, probably not the right. Person. Okay, so like I said, you ought to take you ought to take Je- me Jeff and put Duke. Irvin there. Yeah, I mean, it's um, he was a long way before my time, but kind of I did. A sort of bit of a research into him a couple few years ago, and he was pretty special, you know, and mm. and and and, yeah. and his his uh, involvement into the in the advancement of of motorcycle yes. chassis with the featherbed frame and so yes. on and so forth. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. This is it. This is well. This yeah. is the you know. Yeah. I think this is what. what you know, it's good for people to hear that it's it's not an easy decision. No, um, but I think it is. It, it would be nice to try and get. Jeremy and Irvin, or or maybe we just go for for Irv, and then we're only replacing one because I don't. But look at this list. Yep, there's always next year. Yeah, there's yeah. always this. Yeah, we should say that you know if if someone if we drop off Eddie Lawson or we drop off Jeff Duke or whoever it is, they can easily come back in next year. So mm. that's that's not them gone forever. It's just giving the public some different names to to vote on. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, I mean Mike Hellwood, you can't he can't drop off that list, can he? No, no. It's um. Okay, so Hellwood's definitely yeah, can't. I, I Joey Dunlop just definitely can't. I can't see myself putting a, 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 a line through any of those, really. Yeah, <laughs> I'll okay. leave that up to you. You know what, Ed? <laughs> oh, my goodness. This, this, we're going to leave this up You're not there. making this easy, are no, you? No, we're not. Right. You know, okay, I'll tell you what. It's because, yeah. We, it's it, just if no we really I've already told you. I'd, yeah. I'd be willing to. If, if we know. really can't drop any of these names, then, then we shouldn't force it. Because we need to give the public the, the best names I think to if you're going to start with engineers, yeah. start with Shiro Honda. And, yeah, and okay. Well, I, let's, I let's go from Mr. There, Honda. You know. So just, just so everyone knows, um, we're not totally useless. There is, there's method behind the madness. Um, but for the voting, we're going to have Mr. Honda, Mike Hellwoods, Joey Dunlop, Freddie, Casey Stoner, Barry Sheen, Kevin Schwantz, Kenny Roberts, Wayne Rainey, Eddie Lawson, Mick Dern, and Jeff Duke. What, what a grid of... What a grid of names. Um, I think that's totally fair enough, and I'm t- I'll be interested to see how the voting goes. Mm, um, but Freddie, thank you so much my for pleasure, sparing really. so much yeah, time coming all this fantastic. way. It's been, it's um, been my abso- pleasure, man. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, Matt, thank you to you too, and thank you to Alan for, for making us all sound better than we actually are. We'll see you all in a few months for the next Hall of Fame podcast. Bye-bye for now.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.